Well, good morning. I'm Steve. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at French Church. And whether you're here in the Activity Center or in the Worship Center, we want to welcome you. It's great to have you here. Hopefully you found yourself among friends and uh, really had a great time. Wasn't that a great time of worship as we lifted up the name of Jesus Christ? Pastor Kevin is this morning our senior pastor with his wife Sally and their newborn son Matthew. Matthew was born Thursday morning. Uh, they continue to be in the hospital. Matthew's had a couple issues with his lungs and breathing as they need to develop just a little more. So he's improving, hopefully home soon, but they'd appreciate your prayers and continue to be praying for them. And I know you will, and we do appreciate it. You know, it was uh, May of the year 2000. When the movie came out, Mission Impossible 2. And at the beginning of that movie, there was a conversation between the mission commander, Swanbeck, who was played by Sir Anthony Hopkins, and Ethan Hunt, IMF agent, played, of course, by Tom Cruise. Only after I had turned down the part. But, you know, mistakes. Oh, well. Anyhow, uh, basically, uh, Commander Hopkins was telling Cruz what this next mission was and giving him the details of it. And he was going through, and in short, basically, there was a genetically engineered uh, virus, a biochemical named Chimera, that had been, well, it had fallen into the wrong hands, along with the only antidote for Chimera. And it was uh, Ethan's job... Cruz's job to save the world by retrieving that and getting it out of the hands of the evil people who would use it. So once again, the fate of the world was in the hands of Tom Cruise. And uh, as they were talking, Hopkins looked at him and he says, I want to get this right. The mother of all nightmares is on the loose. The mother of all nightmares is on the loose. The only worst thing I can imagine is the mother-in-law of all nightmares on the loose. (laughs) I'm getting the dirty look, so I better move on. Well, Cruz did something that was very um, not typical for Ethan Hunt. He looked at his commander and he says, I don't think I can do it. Hopkins replied, you mean it is difficult? And Cruz looked at him and said, very. Hopkins took a minute and looked at him. He says, well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. This is mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. And sure enough, it was. He took the duty. He took the job. He went out and he saved the world so that we could live today and so that we could, over the next 15 years, see Mission Impossible 3, Mission Impossible 4, and now Mission Impossible 5 over these last 15. And looking forward to a Mission Impossible 6 coming up soon, according to what they say. But as I thought about that and thought about this exchange about difficult versus impossible, sometimes I think we have that same tendency at times to look at something that's difficult And in our minds, all of a sudden, it transfers to something impossible. In our Christian life, in our Christian walk, sometimes I think we've gotten the the view and probably been told at times, ah, the Christian life, it's it's a walk in the park. It's Christmas all the time. 
and we start walking the Christian life, and we find out that sometimes it is difficult. Very difficult. And so we can start to, in our own minds, think, whoa, maybe this is impossible. Maybe I can't live the way Christ wants me to live. Maybe I can't be a disciple of Christ. As I thought about that more, I ran across uh, this quote out of one of my favorite books, Near Christianity by theologian C.S. Lewis. And he said this, It is a terrible thing, an almost impossible thing, to hand yourself over to your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. Once again, it is a terrible thing, an almost impossible thing, to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. I'll make note, though, of that word, almost. It's, even Lewis himself admits, it's not easy. It's difficult, yes, very difficult at times. But it's not impossible. So I started thinking to myself, well, God, if that's the case, how is it possible? How is it possible that this could happen? You remember maybe in John chapter 3, a man came to Jesus and said, you know, uh, you know how do I inherit, inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, you must be born again. And his question, well, how is that possible? How is it possible? And so I want to ask the same question this morning. Lord, how is it possible if it's difficult, very difficult? Because if, I re, if I'm allowed to rephrase uh, C.S. Lewis here, I would say the terrible thing, the very difficult thing, is to hand over your whole self and your wishes to Christ Jesus. And it is at times very difficult. And so I was looking and I happened to come across an article, an essay that was written in the, the paper is the Sunday Times out of London. It was written on March 21st, 1943. The Sunday Times had published an essay, less than 500 words, from C.S. Lewis. And in there, he basically said there are three kinds of men. Three kinds of men. Now, for my title of the sermon this morning, I've changed that to three kinds of people so that you ladies would listen in. But there's three kinds of people. And he deals with this and takes us deeper. Now, I could read this 500 page or 500 word essay in about three minutes and we could be out of here or I could preach on it for 30 minutes. So don't get up. We're preaching. (laughs) In this essay, though, written by C.S. Lewis. He said there's three kinds of people. He said the first kind of person are those who live simply for their own sake and pleasure. Today, we would call a person who lives simply for their own sake and pleasure a hedonist. A hedonist is a person who believes that the pursuit of pleasure is the most important thing in life. And we might... Uh, agree that at times we have all been like this. In fact, I imagine right now Kevin and Sally are finding out again for the fourth time that when a baby is born, they a lot of times are living for their own sake and pleasure. When they're hungry, they cry. And just like me, when I'm hungry, I yell out to my wife. You know, we have this thing. We live for our own sake and pleasure. And it happens. But eventually, most of us grow out of that. 
But you know, it's interesting, there's a modern study done that suggested that the pursuit of pleasure drives almost everyday decision that we make. Almost every decision that we make in a day is driven by the pursuit of pleasure, or the opposite, the, the avoidance of anti-pleasure or pain. <laughs> right, we're either pursuing pleasure or we're avoiding pain, but it all involves me. It's all about me. It's all about me. But it's not just modern day. Going back hundreds and thousands, even a thousand years ago plus, one of the early church leaders, a man we've come to know as a, as a great theologian and philosopher, Augustine, he wrote a book called Confessions. In fact, it's thought to be maybe the oldest, the first Western autobiography that we know of. And in there, he wrote this. He said, as a teenager, he preferred hedonism to studying. Now, I've got to admit, most teenagers would prefer anything to studying. <laughs> but to say, I would prefer hedonism, at 16 years old, he dropped out of school, he quit studying, and he began chasing women and became a thief. Today, we know him as one of the early great church leaders. So, it's not uncommon. We, fall our, we find a trap here. We, we, we call them a hedonist. The Bible has another word for it, or another phrase. The Bible calls these people lovers of pleasure. 2 Timothy 3 says this, In the last days, there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money, and love pleasure rather than God. So we see this group of people who... who C.S. Lewis says, these are people who live only for themselves, totally for pleasure. But in reality, I think that's probably a very small group. There's a lot of people who live for pleasure, but they only live up for pleasure up to a point. I think the great majority of people, maybe even the great majority of people gathered in this room and in the worship center today, live in what he would call the second class of people. Those who acknowledge some other claim on their life. People who will acknowledge some other claim on your life. I've called these accommodating people. They're people who will acknowledge that somebody can set some rules and boundaries in their life. I may like it, and I may not like it. I may obey it and probably try to obey it, but only up to a certain point. I honestly try to pursue my own interests, but only in the boundaries permitted. Lewis says it's kind of like paying a tax. You pay the tax because you owe the tax, but you don't like paying it. For one reason, because when you pay the tax... It takes money out of your pocket. There's less for me. And so I go to the government and I say, you want some money? There, I'll pay my tax. As long as I can keep this. This is me. This is mine. I'll follow the rules, but only to a certain extent. So I got to thinking about this. Who are the people? Where do we find boundaries in our lives? Who are those that we accommodate and I started thinking through, and who the first ones that many of us found as a, as, a, as a boundary on our life was our parents. Curfew. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll obey the curfew. 
Um, most of the time. <laughs> you know, I'll pay that tax, but, but God only ask so much of me. I got to eat what? I got to clean up my, my bath, my bedroom? Ah. And so we pay the tax, but we inwardly at times rebel against the one setting the boundaries. You know what it's like if you remember growing up. Having boundaries that were uncomfortable. Boundaries that restricted you. Boundaries that let uh, me by me. I gotta be me. And a lot of us can live that way. We can live, as long as I can live with my, for myself, I'm okay. But when the boundaries start coming too close, when they start restricting me, I don't like it. So then I go to school and I find a whole other set of rules. Citizenship? You know, the one comment I got on a report card when I was young was I talked during class. I got a low grade in citizenship. Grades. They may, sometimes they may even make you wear a uniform. Ugh, uniform. I, I, I got to go to school. Eh, I got to go to school. I'll pay that tax. Oh, but I'll, I'll skip a few days. So we allow the school and the school comes in and puts restrictions on it. Then we go to work and we have an employer. Uh, you don't get to skip days there. They're called vacation. <laughs> Uh-oh, performance review. This is a big one. I, I, I got to perform. I got to perform. And so, and so we get into this mode of, of satisfying other people, but still saying, okay, how much do I live for myself? How much do I have for myself? Can I be satisfied with this? Don't take too much from me. I can live within the rules as long as they don't infringe on my freedom. How about society? Society puts restrictions on us. Some of them are um, unwritten. You just act certain ways. Some of them are written. They're called laws. Well, I'm getting low. Society's laws. A week and a half ago, on Wednesday night, it was our last growth group meeting that Sheila and I had been leading. And I bumped headfirst into one of these uh, society laws. We left the parking lot here and we started heading north on Psalm Center on 91. Has anybody ever noticed how those stoplights are timed on 91? They aren't. They're, 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 they're set there to make you take forever. We're driving, we get up past 90, and we start heading up, and I get to the corner there of 91 and Ridge Road, and there's a stoplight, and I stop. And sure enough, that light turns green, and you know that next light at Wendy's? It's just about 100 yards. I don't know, it's, it's a short distance. But as soon as I turned green at, at Ridge, it started, the one at Wendy's turned red. Well, I don't think it was red. This is where the story differs between Sheila's version and my version. <laughs> I would swear on a stack of Cleveland Plain Dealers <laughs> that there were still tinges of orange in that light. I know there was tinges of orange in that light. Sheila begs to differ. As we were going through it, she says, what are you doing? And I said, some laws don't apply to me. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have said that. I owe something on that one. Yeah. I owe. 
We do that. We say, okay, what laws are good? What laws can I get away? What laws can I avoid? What laws can I disobey without getting hurt? Who's going to get hurt? And we, and we say, okay, that restriction I can live with. And so we get used to living with restrictions all our lives. But yet, we live this double life. When I'm at school, i got to live one way. When I'm not at school, I can live another way. When I'm, when I'm with my parents, i got to act one way. When I'm not with my parents, I can act another way. When I'm at work, i got to work, dress and walk and talk and do this. When I'm at home, I can forget all that. I can do everything. And when society's not watching, is there, was there a cop around? <laughs> And so we start living a double life. Unfortunately, as Lewis points out, so many of us carry that same mentality when we start talking about a relationship with God. Because there's a fifth claim on our life. And that claim, for many, is religion. And we look at our religion and we say, okay, God, um, uh, honor your father and mother. Okay. Um, don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Uh, okay. And we pay our tax, but all the time we're paying our tax, we're secretly either one of two things. We're, we're guilt, feeling guilty because maybe we don't have enough to pay or we can't pay or we just choose not to pay. And so guilt overwhelms us. And, and I says, God, I, I could pay you, but I only got this much left. I, I got to have some for me. Or we do the other thing, we pay it, and we just kind of feel ticked off about it. <laughs> you know, God, you know what I could do? You know, I, you're, you're, you're cramping my style. You're taking away from who I want to be. And so, uh, I don't have much left, God, but this is me. Is that all right if I keep it? For me? For me? We pursue our own interests up to a point. Up to a point where maybe God says, no, don't do that, and we'll do it. But after a while, after a while, we realize we're living a double life. We're living a double life. I'll live God's rules as long as they're comfortable, as long as they don't cost too much, as long as I still have enough to live on, as long as it doesn't hurt. So while we may call these people accommodating, the Bible calls them double-minded. Matthew 6.24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. Now Jesus here is, actually, he's talking about money. He's talking about money. But that concept, that principle that you can't serve two masters is true. And it's true not, true not just for money. It's, and it's dangerous when we try to serve two masters, especially when we are trying to do, decide between ourselves and God. Who's going to be the master? Is it going to be God? Is there going to be me? Or am I going to try to live this double-minded life where I hang on to give him a little bit now and then? We're double-minded. Paul, Paul, in looking at this, he understands and acknowledges that these claims on our life are difficult to handle. These claims on our life of myself and the Lord's call, something has got to give. And so in our scripture this morning, in Galatians chapter 2, if you have that there, Galatians chapter 2, he's talking. And he's talking about these competing claims on our life. Myself and my God. And how do we deal with that? 
In Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 19, he starts off in 15, he says this, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. And I says, who, you and I? And they go, well, wait a minute, I'm a Gentile. That's not good. <laughs> this isn't starting off good right now, so uh, Lord, I want to read on. It says this, yet, even though, you're, even though we may have started off good, even though we might have been born in the right family, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not, not by obeying the law. What he's saying is, it's not by paying the tax. It's not by paying the tax that we're made good. It's not by paying the tax that we're made whole. It's not by paying the tax that we are free. It's not doing those good things. He says, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. Not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. What he's saying is, you don't have enough capital. You can't do enough of the good things. You're always living this double life. You're never, never, never going to experience the freedom and the grace and the mercy of Christ. You can't do it. You don't have enough. Verse 17. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ. And then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. What would that mean? Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of the law. I already tore down. And now listen to this. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. Well, Paul's saying, this isn't working. It isn't working. It isn't working. I live this divided life. Everybody here is living a divided life that is in this category. We're trying to serve our parents and ourselves. We're trying to serve government and ourselves, our school and ourselves, our teachers and ourselves. But when we start saying, I want to serve God and myself, Paul has some very strong things to say. He says, you cannot do it. It will not satisfy. James, the brother of Jesus, says this about double-minded people. He says, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And it's time to do something about it. And so, C.S. Lewis has said we have this category of Hedonists, which I think is maybe a fairly small category to be a total hedonist. But I think there's this large category of people, class of people, who are double-minded, who are accommodating, who try to say, I will, I will live for God this so much, and I will live for myself so much, I just got to make sure that I keep enough for me. Oops, God, we got a problem here. I didn't give very much. This isn't very fun. What am I going to do with this? And so... Lewis says there's a third. A third group. The third group are those who reject the claims of self altogether. Here at French Church, we have a, a name for those people. We call those Christ-centered people. Christ-centered people. There's another quote. It's not on the board, but I, I, as I was reading through uh, Mere Christianity, again, this just struck me so much. He says the real test of being in the presence of God 
is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. The real test of being in the presence of God is you forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. And he says about this, it is better to forget about yourself altogether. To forget about yourself and to see God. To say it doesn't make any difference to me. Matthew wrote these words of Jesus. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower... You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. I don't know about you, but um, that to me sounds difficult. Very difficult. Taking up a cross is a hard, hard thing to do. And Jesus is saying, it's not impossible, but it might be difficult. It might be very difficult. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. It's gone. If I try to hang on, it's gone. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That was Jesus. In our scripture in Galatians, Paul follows that up. You might have remembered in the beginning of verse 19, he said that the law condemned him. Well, the rest of verse 19 says this, So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. What I think Paul is saying here, if we can, is I quit paying the God tax. I'm no longer paying and seeing what I can keep. He said, I stopped trying to meet the law. I stopped trying to meet its requirements so that I might live for God. He goes on to say this. So I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A.W. Tozer said this. The man with the cross no longer controls his destiny. He lost control when he picked up his cross. So, this third person, the person who surrenders it all, picks up a cross and is crucified with Christ. That doesn't sound real easy to me. Sometimes I know when we, we picture Christianity, we talk about Christianity, we say it's, it's easy, but sometimes we're asked to do tough things. Sometimes it can be difficult, very difficult to follow Christ. But yet, I look at this and I see some wonderful things. First of all, I see in Paul here, he says, I'm crucified, I'm dead, but then I'm alive. I'm crucified, I'm dead, but I'm alive. And I said, how can that be? Isn't that mission impossible? Isn't it impossible for the dead to come to life? As I thought about that, I thought of of another story, a true story about another virus. It was a deadly virus. In fact, this virus infects everybody from Adam and Eve to those gathered here today. It's a virus called sin. It's 100%. In fact, the Bible tells us that we all got it. And it's 100% deadly. It will kill every one of us. 
We will all die in our sin. And so we have what I consider here to be mission impossible. What can be done? What can be done about this death? I can imagine the meeting up in heaven. As the Godhead gathered together and they're looking down and they see this virus. Kind of like Hopkins and Cruz getting together. Oh, this is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're talking and they says, you know, we got this virus. It's in the wrong hands. It's got to be retrieved. What are we going to do about it? God the Father says, I know what we need to do. And Christ says, I know what we need to do. God says, you know the cost. You know what it's going to take. You know the challenges. In fact, we know that Christ knew the challenges before he came. The prophets. The prophets tell us this. That when Christ comes, he would be despised. He would be rejected. He would be a man of sorrows. He would be acquainted with grief. He would be oppressed. He would be afflicted. He would suffer. He would be crushed. That's your mission, should you choose to accept it. It's tough. I can imagine Jesus saying, I don't know if I can do it. Do you remember before he went on the cross, he was saying, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, I don't know if I can do it. And God saying, you mean it's going to be difficult? Very. I, I can imagine God saying, I will be with you. I'm your father. I will never leave you or forsake you. It can be done. It's not mission impossible. It's just mission difficult. You can do it. And so we see that he came. And he gave and he suffered. And there was death. That's difficult. The exciting part, though, is I think for God, it gets easy from here on. What does God do better than give life? What's what's more in his wheelhouse than to give somebody life? I mean, here's God who created the universe out of nothing. Sun, moon, star, planets, earth. Here's God who created every living thing. He created out of dust. Formed a man and breathed life into him. Took a rib out of man, created woman, gave life to her. Now we have Jesus who has suffered and been rejected and been despised and been crucified. And he's got to bring him to life. And he's got all the parts there. All the parts are already there. All he's got to do is a little stitching up, a little repairing. Breathe life, say get up, and this is God's wheelhouse. He says, I have come to give life. And he gives Christ life. And Paul says, when, he gives, when I die, i got to suffer. I got, this is not easy. It's difficult. But God gives me new life. That's what he's in the business of doing. As Anthony Hopkins would say, it's a walk in the park for God. To give new life. The scary part, though, about this is before the new life is the difficult part. It's the difficult part. And as I've read this past week and kind of studied this a little more, the thought came to me, 
I don't see anywhere in here where Christ gives us any other options. I don't see where he says, you can come, but you don't have to die. You can come, but don't get on your cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Did you hear at the beginning, the video we played? The mission, should you choose to become one of my disciples, is this. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Put to death what belongs to the earthly nature. Count yourself dead to sin. Put to death deeds of sinful nature. Care nothing for your life. Throw off your sinful nature. Be crucified. Here at church, here at French Church, we have another term for this. We call this the fourth chair living. Have you noticed in, out in the lobby, there's a display of chairs. Where are you and what kind of commitment have you made? And I'm afraid all the other chairs, although we may at times say, yeah, I fit here, I fit here, I fit here. But they're all in the second person category. They're all saying, yes, Christ has some claims in my life, but I'm going to maintain some of mine. The fourth chair says, no, I give it all up. I surrender it all. I'm crucified with Christ. I will sit in the chair of total self-denial. I give up all claims to self. That's fourth chair living. But I think a lot of times we would prefer it not be that way. Certainly there's got to be options. You know, if you go to a country club and you want to join a country club, they got the executive membership, but they also got a junior membership, an associate membership, and a social membership. In the social membership, you can eat there, but you can't play golf and other things. The junior membership, maybe you can play golf when it rains or snows, you know, because no one else wants on the course. <laughs> Associate membership, uh, maybe you get to play once a month or once a quarter or something like that. Maybe you get to invite a few guests, but that's all. But if you want all the benefits, you'd be an executive member. You get all the benefits. We say, Christ, can't it be like that? Can't I be an associate member in your body? Can I be an associate disciple? You know, I can kind of hang on to a few of these things here. Can I hang on and, you know, I, I really don't need miracles. Just, just work with me now and then, you know, help me out. You know, the miracles, they can go to the executive members. That's the way we live our life sometimes. I, I just want to be an associate member. But I don't see anywhere in here where Christ calls us to associate membership. I don't see anywhere where Christ says, you're okay keeping your own self for certain areas of your life, but not surrendering. I don't see anything. This is anything but deny yourself. Take up your cross. Be crucified. Ignatius says this, Few souls understand what God would accomplish in them if they were to abandon themselves unreservedly. To him. Few souls understand what God could accomplish in us. As I look at the great organizations that have risen up and done miraculous and incredible things across the world in the name of Christ, I see at the center and outward people who are selfless, totally surrendered, crucified people. And I say, God, what will it take for Friends Church? What will it take for me? 
to have those kind of results, to see you work in such miraculous ways. And I've heard all week, again and again, I really don't have any other options. This is it. When I call a man, I bid him come and die, in the words of Bonhoeffer. D.L. Moody says this, The world has yet to see what God can do, and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and holy, consecrated to him. And he says this, I will try my utmost to be that man. The question I leave you with this morning, will you be the one? It just struck me over and over and over again. Christ did not give us any other option. He said, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. 100% sold out. Give it up. That's what Christ is asking from us. Are you willing? Are you willing to be the one? Are you willing to take a stand? To hop up on the cross and say, Lord, everything I have is yours. That's what he's asking. That's what he's asking. We're going to pray. And as we pray, maybe you've been challenged and say, Lord, I've been holding back. I've been paying my tax and not all in. Forgive me. And we want to give you that opportunity. If you want to come pray here at the altar while we sing this next song, the song we sang earlier about being broken, the amazing grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Next week, come back, bring a friend. We're going to talk about what a self-sacrificed life looks like. What does it look like when we actually do turn ourselves completely over to Christ. But the first step is to do it. Is to do it. If you want to come speak with me, have pray with me, that's fine too. Down in the worship center, Gabe's there, he'll pray with you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this moment, the challenge that you've laid incredibly on my heart. Forgive us for our divided loyalties. Forgive us, Lord, for um, our selfishness, the ego that has gotten in our way so many times. Speak to us now. Change us, mold us, make us into the people, the person that you'd have us to be. Help us to be in that third class of individuals, that blue chair, fourth chair sitter that serves you 100%. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we sing this last song, I just want to encourage you, um, you can stay seated and ponder, or you can uh, come up here to the front and pray before God. I just want to encourage you to take the words of this song and meditate on it. You may not know the melody. You may not know how to sing it. Um, but just allow these words to impact you right now. So if you'll stand and sing with me if you're able. All these pieces Broken and scattered 
mercy gathered, mended and whole, empty-handed but not forsaken, I've been set free, I've been set free, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
that saved a wretch like me. up the broken to life. That's in his wheelhouse. That's what God's good at. That's what he loves doing. He wants to do that for you. You may be seated as the ushers come.